man, want to uh, express what an honor it is to be invited to be a part of this meeting this year. Uh, my wife and I have attended every summit there has been thus far. This is a priority on our calendar. I love and appreciate the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. There are three uh, distinct things that I appreciate about the Worldwide Pentecostal Fellowship. I want to mention number one is the men that make it up. I love and appreciate the leadership of this fellowship. Every one of them are tremendous men of God, have been heroes in my life before there was a WPF. I love and appreciate, second of all, the message that is upheld and preached. This fellowship, as good or perhaps even better than just about any other that I've interacted with, has been able to merge evangelism, revival, church growth with a strong doctrinal holiness uh, message. And thank God for it. Thank God for the balance that's here. And another thing I want to uh, remark, I've been to uh, most of the major WPF meetings throughout the country, and there is consistently a move of the Holy Ghost here. And the spirit of this fellowship is tremendous. And one thing I love about the spirit of this fellowship is there's not an us for no more mentality. You do not have to be a member of the WPF to be accepted, fellowshiped, and have the friendship of the good men of God here. If you love the same message that everybody else here loves, then you're going to fit in and be a part. And I thank God for that. I thank God for it. say thank you to uh, uh, all the powers that be for the good accommodations, the uh, basket in the room, which my three-year-old little girl's already started decimating, and I've helped her out a little bit. And, uh, good to be here with my wife and daughter, family. I saw my brother, sister-in-law, and the uh, crowd, uh, little brother-in-law-to-be up here on the front row, and uh, so I'm Surrounded by friends today and all the speakers of the meeting. Brother Kuhn did a tremendous job last night. Love and appreciate you, Brother Kuhn. I know you're standing, so let's go to the word of the Lord. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 19. Now, I was asked to be the morning Bible teacher today. And uh, I have did some pondering as to what is expected out of a Bible teacher as opposed to being just the first preacher. And the nearest I can uh, come up with is I need to slow down and go for a very, very, very long time. And, uh, I certainly would want to live up to the expectations of the good elders that made this possible. So. I'm just telling you what I was asked to do. 
Exodus 23, verse 19, the first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. It needs to be noted, God always wants the first of the first fruits. I'm not teaching on tithing today, but if you pay your tithes first, there's never a conflict between tithe and any other financial obligation you have. The only reason someone cannot afford to pay tithe is because Jesus is not preeminent in, in lordship in their life. Other things are preeminent, and Jesus is somewhere down the ladder somewhere. Uh, but when you put him first, you work everything else in. So yeah, that's beside the point off subject. But I want to focus here on the last part of this text. The scripture said, thou shalt not sieve a kid in his mother's milk. Thou shalt not sieve a kid in his mother's milk. And there's three times in the word of God that this very uh, law and commandment is asserted. Do not sieve or do not boil a baby in his mother's milk. And I'm going to teach for a little while this morning about preserving a culture of life. Preserving a culture of life. And everyone said in Jesus' name, God bless you. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Now this law forbade the Jews from boiling the flesh of a young animal in its mother's milk. And this law provides the foundation of a whole section of Jewish dietary law that's still observed by devout Jews of today. The kosher dietary law that the Jews have developed in order to try to fulfill the uh, teaching of this particular law of not boiling the baby in its mother's milk has, uh, has developed quite extensively. I did some reading on it recently, and this prohibits in the Jewish uh, way of looking at things, this scripture prohibits eating anything that involves dairy and meat together in the same meal. But they further believe that the separation of dairy and meat not only includes foods eaten, eaten or cooked together, but it also extends to the utensils and the pots and the pans with which they are cooked. A kosher household will have two, at least two sets of pots and pans. One set is used to cook meat products and another is used for dairy. Furthermore, the rabbis have come up with several different opinions as to how long you need to wait from eating meat and to you eat dairy. So we're going to go to lunch after a while and, and we'll sit down and eat a piece of meat for lunch. And if you were a Jew, you couldn't have any milk, any yogurt, cheese, or anything really good to go along with that meat. And, and you would have to wait for uh, so many hours before you could eat a piece of cheese. Some say three hours, others 
say, no, you need to wait six hours. And the reason that they believe you should wait so long after eating a piece of meat is because that you might have some particles of meat stuck in your teeth somewhere. And, and in their way of looking at this scripture, if you were to eat a dairy product and there would be a particle of meat left in your teeth from the previous meal, then that would be a violation of what God says to don't see the kid in its uh, mother's milk. They furthermore do not believe that cheese and meat can be served on the same tablecloth. And we could go on and on talking about that. However, here we are today in the church age, and we do not observe the law of Moses in all the ceremonial parts of the law. We do not believe that the law of God is done away with, but we do believe that the Mosaic covenant was fulfilled in its entirety with the coming of Jesus Christ. He came in the volume of the book, and, and, and when you get filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, you do not have to observe the ceremonial law of Moses. We do not believe that. However, when we read through the law of Moses, and there's lots of different scriptures in there, that while we don't keep them in the letter of the law today, we need to understand that scriptures like not boiling the kid in its mother's milk and not mixing different kinds of cloth together, all of these scriptures were based on a deeper underlying principle of godliness that I believe is an eternal principle that represents a value that is inherent to God. And while we do not keep the specific ceremonial interpretation as was given to Moses, I think it would do us well to dig deeper when we look at these Old Testament laws and try to ascertain what was the principle that was behind the law? What was the motivating factor? And when I look at this passage and the other passages where God clearly says, do not sieve a kid, don't boil a baby in its mother's milk, the underlying principle of that commandment is this. God is saying, I do not want you to take what is intended to be a means of life and use it to become a means of death. God does not want what is intended for life to become an avenue of death. When you read through the word of God, we find that God is all about life. When he first looked upon man in the book of Genesis, and he breathed in Adam, he breathed the breath of life and man became a living soul. John chapter 1 verse 4 says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. What is the light of men? It's the life of the Holy Ghost on the inside. There is a spark and a glow that comes along with getting filled with the Holy Ghost that nothing else can compare with it. I've watched this over and over again in our church. We'll 
baptize someone in Jesus' name and see them get the Holy Ghost, there is a visible difference in their face when they really get the Holy Ghost. Because in him was life. And when life comes on the inside, it lights something up. Thank God for life. John 10 and 10 said that the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Thank God for life. When Jesus steps on the scene, he brings life into a world of death. The enemy is all about trying to degrade people, to enslave people, to demean people, to tear them apart and tear their families apart, to kill and to maim and to destroy. But I'm glad to report to you that this Acts 2.38 message works. That when a person comes into the church after wasting years in a dying world, and they have the scars of death all over their emotions and all over their body, Jesus steps on the scene and brings life and brings it more abundantly. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 said, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life, and godliness. So here there are some things that just go along with a culture of life. And he's given these things. Psalm uh, chapter 30 and verse 5 says, His anger endureth but a moment, but in his favor is life. One way to know when the favor of God is on your family and on your church is that your church will take on a culture of life. The favor of the Lord brings life. I believe with all of my heart that God intended the local Pentecostal church to be a place where there is a strong and definite culture of life. It's to be a place where people that were dead in sin can come there and find life and find eternal life. The culture of life is a place where broken people can come and be restored. Broken homes and broken marriages can be restored in a culture of life. A culture of life is a place where a backslider can come and find hope and live again. A culture of life is a place where people that live under high pressure demanding circumstances every day of the week and they come out of homes that are hell holes and they work in places that's filled with profanity and ungodliness and they're, they're immersed in a culture of death all week long. A culture of life is a place where we can step in there for a couple of hours on a Wednesday night. And there's something in that place from another world that, that, that that's a spiritual battery charge. And, and you go in there and the life of the spirit is injected again through the worship and the preaching of God's word. 
I have been on a trail of something for the last year or so in Memphis. I've been preaching a lot about having the favor of God. And I have got this idea of a culture of life fixated in, in, in my mind and my spirit as a pastor. And, and I want our church to be a place where things are living. I grew up as a child in an environment that was dead. I know what it's like to be a part of a church that for many, many, many years, not one soul received the Holy Ghost. In my growing up years, I cannot remember one occasion where it was ever known of anybody teaching a home Bible study. Door knocking, evangelism, that wasn't part of the equation. And so even though we believed in getting the Holy Ghost and we believed in Jesus' name baptism, it was something that was just foreign. It was a rarity. Church was dry and dead for many years at a time. The place I was from when I was a child, if somebody ran the aisles or shouted, that was dinner conversation for a month. Hey, remember that Sunday night back when? <laughs> I know what it's like for church to be boring. I know what it's like for church to have an acidic tone. <laughs> I know what it's like to be a part of a church culture where you look for reasons to miss. But you really didn't have to miss all that much. And I have decided as a pastor, I don't want our church to be like that. I just happen to believe that in spite of how bad this world is and how messed up a lot of things in a lot of places are, I believe this is the greatest day for the apostolic church. I believe our churches can be more powerful, they can be bigger, they can have more happening today than what they've ever happened. I want to have a church where there's an undercurrent of joy in the atmosphere. We hit we hit something a year and a half ago. Our church used to be on midweek. We'd clear out 15 minutes after service. But something broke in the spirit. Life began to flow. And now it's not uncommon for an hour, hour and a half, and two hours after service dismissed that there's still a roar of happy conversation in the, in the sanctuary. I like that. I like to walk out of my office before service and there's a roar in the sanctuary of people praying. That's an indicator to me that something's alive there. The culture of life is a place where new people can get the Holy Ghost freely. 
A culture of life is a place where there is room for individual expression. And if we are going to have a culture of life in our church, it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen because somebody determined that things are going to live around here. We are not going to allow what God intended to be a means of life to become a means of death. I want to just mention a few things that, in my opinion, are essential to having a culture of life. First of all, in order for there to be a culture of life in a church, we've got to have some happy Christian homes. I've learned as a pastor that the culture of the home is the most powerful culture on the face of the earth. It's more powerful than church culture. It's more powerful than Holy Ghost culture. It's more powerful than American culture. You know how I know that? It's because if, if, if the home does not back up what's happening at church, typically what is preached at church will not be an act at home and, and we've got to have some homes that's filled with love and filled with joy and, and there needs to be a sense of hope and a sense of virtue in the home but all too often we've got we've got families and I'm talking about families where all everybody's in church we've got families where there's a lot of a lust and there's anger and jealousy and insecurity and all of those things rule the day and parents raise their children in an environment where they can't wait to get out of the house when they turn 18. I don't have time to qualify over what I'm saying because I know there are some great homes where that happens in spite of it. I understand that. However, if, if we raise our children in an environment of hypocrisy, they see dad and mom shouting at church but living like the devil at home. We're going to kill those kids. The home that should have been a launching pad into a mission-filled life will actually become a cauldron of death. Parents have got to make up the mind that we want our home to be a culture of life. Another ingredient to having a culture of life in the church, in our home, is the apostolic preacher. The apostolic preacher will either be a minister of life or he will be an angel of death. And a lot of that, and I'm fixing to give you a scripture to back that up, a lot of it will be Contingent on how you perceive the man of God in your life. God placed the ministry into our life to put life into us. I thank God for a pastor that, that lifted me. I thank God for a pastor that still to this day challenges me. 
that wants me to be better and my home to be better and my finances to be better. And, and I credit just about everything God's ever blessed me with to having a man of God in my life that, that puts something in me. Anointing flows from heaven into the headship of the church and into the submitted saints. You preachers know what it's like to walk to the pulpit. When you get that anointing of God burning in your soul and you have a word from God, you get up there and you preach what God gave you, something starts moving in the spirit and it's like a current of Holy Ghost electricity starts moving through that congregation and, and all the smog and the fog and the confusion just starts going away. Thank God for the ministry. We, we have a number of people that have prayed through in our church. In fact, just about everybody we've been winning to God has a lot of tattoos on their body. We have a church that that is all tatted up. And uh, many of the people that we have have tattoos on parts of their body that are not easily covered with clothing. And I've just seen the ones that are in public areas of the body and hard to imagine what full extent of our tattoo uh, issues are, but we've got a lot of tattoos, and and here last year we were having a lot of people coming in, and, and they come into a holiness environment, and people that's been established in the church, I mean our saints, uh, we don't go get tattoos, and uh, we don't believe that's something an apostolic person should do. However, we were, we just had a situation where I was teaching Bible studies to a number of people and constantly they would make references to their tattoos and it would be an embarrassed reference. And, and you know, one person, a uh, very talented person, expressed reservations about using their talents on the platform because they had tattoos that would be visible. And, and, and there was just this, uh, started detecting after a while, there was just a cloud that was hanging over so many of these people that had tattoos and there was a condemnation attached to it. And, and, and I'd never really much preached about tattoos. It hadn't really been an issue before. But I remember one, one uh, Wednesday night I was preaching, had no idea of, 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 of going to be talking about tattoos that night. And, and all of a sudden it was, the issue was right there and the time was right. And I felt that touch of the Holy Ghost and, so I started talking about tattoos, and I just mentioned, hey, folks, we got a lot of tattoos in this church. Yeah, some of them are the bad kind. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I said, we're going to establish something right here. We're not going to go get no more tattoos. Agreed? I'm putting my foot down. We're drawing the line. No more tattoos. But that being said, some of you have already got them, and a lot of you do. I said, what you need to do, I said, you need to start, uh, you need to be proud of that tattoo because it's a visible sign of where God brought you from. And see them gang symbols and say, hey, look where God brought me from. 
and I preached about it, and it was just a few minutes' time. I cannot explain it, but something just lifted. That condemned, that, that, that guilty feeling that wasn't coming from God, it just went away. And a preacher has got a tremendous ability to move mountains in the spirit. When he gets under the anointing and inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he'll bring life into a congregation. And and I have I've noticed that the people in our church that are affectionate towards me and I share a very deep affection towards everybody in our church. The one where we ones where we have that kind of pastor saint bond, there's a there's a two way affection there. My ministry is very persuasive and it's very effective in their life. I've watched over the years that the ones who are the most blessed people in our church the ones who God blesses the most financially are the ones that have allowed me to step into their heart as pastor. It brings life to have the ministry. However, there are situations in which people have done, been done wrong or perceived to have been done wrong by a man of God. Situations, and we've got them in our church, where people have said under a previous pastor that committed adultery. Pastors who pulled very unethical financial shenanigans. And, and some of the horror stories would blow your mind. And I'm sure we've all heard them. Every area has them. And, and some people have a jaded perception of the ministry. Sometimes it's not just because they're filled with rebellion and don't love God, but there's just been a lot of bad water under the bridge, so to speak. And so when they view the preacher, as much as they would like to do otherwise, it's in a negative paradigm. And, and when people get disenchanted with the man of God in the church, they get crossed up. Sometimes it's just a pure, purely rebellious spirit. Typically, they go on a recruiting mission. Rebellion is a very, very weak spirit, and it's got to recruit company in order to stand. Spirit of rebellion cannot hardly stand alone. It's a weak spirit. It's got to have people to uh, and reasons to surround it to boltress its right to exist so when people get crossed up they start looking for reasons to to not submit to not go along to criticize the preacher but i won't tell you when you're doing that when you go on a recruiting mission and you take your bad experiences however right and real they were and you use that as a means to to build walls and drive wedges 
between the preacher and other people in the congregation, what you're doing is boiling the baby in the milk. You are taking the man that God intended to be a means of life to that congregation and you're interjecting your bad, twisted perspective and you're taking the means of life and turning it into a means of death. Now, I told our church a while back, I have been done wrong by some auto mechanics. I've been cheated by some mechanics. I, I, I can remember one place I used to take my car. Every time I'd take my car there, he'd fix one problem and I'd leave about three or four. I finally figured out this job security for it. And going there to get a $50 part, replace the engine blow up the next week. And, uh, and you know what, I, I eventually I realized I was getting done wrong. But it would not do for me as a pastor to assume that every man that works on cars in our church is a low-down reprobate. It would not do for me to, to assume that all mechanics are crooks. As a pastor, I've been done wrong by some saints. But you know what? I cannot be an effective pastor if I assume everybody in church is a bad person, has got an ulterior motive, is out to get me. I've got to let that go. And if I've got to let it go and forget about it and move on with life, if you've had a bad experience back down the way with a preacher, somewhere you've got to let go, forget about it, and move on with life. Because in order for that man of God to produce a culture of life in your family and in your soul, there's got to be something in your heart that says, I'm willing to believe, I'm willing to trust, I'm willing to give this preacher a chance, I'm willing to allow him to step in my world and lead me and guide me and correct me. Talk about preserving a culture of life. We can take anything that is intended for life and we can twist it and manipulate it and corrupt it and make it an instrument of death. Another thing that, that is important to a culture of life is that there be a strong standard of holiness. Now, in our church, we teach standards of practical holiness separation from the world. I believe it's incumbent upon me as a pastor to not only preach against sin, but to name sin. You can preach against worldliness in any Baptist church in America and get a good amen. But we need to go a step beyond just preaching against worldliness and ungodliness in a general terminology. But we need some men of God who has got some gumption and discernment and insight to tell us what worldliness is. God put the teaching pastor in the church to name sin. To teach people the difference between right and wrong. Well, Brother Adams, I, I, I just 
preach to the people they need to fear sin and live for God and stay away from the world. Well, you, 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 you're doing something, aren't you? We've got to have more than that. We've got to have standards of holiness and teachings of holiness. We've got to have that. However, it's very important to understand that every standard of holiness needs to flow out of a revelated principle. Every principle, every standard has a principle and every principle has an application and it's from the application that we get the term standard. For example, the principle of holiness teaches that we should shun the very appearance of evil. The principle of holiness says we should not bring the abomination into our house. That's the principle. However, we've got to go beyond just preaching a principle. And as a pastor, I've got to give the practical application of the principle. And in our church, the practical application of shunning the appearance of evil and ungodly entertainment is we do not use Hollywood entertainment in any form whatsoever. We don't have televisions. Don't rent movies. I don't watch it on my iPhone or iPad or computer. We don't want any of it. I do not buy into the idea that that we need to give people liberty to pick and choose through the sewer pipes of Hollywood. So I'm going to tell you what, you open that door. You open up the valve of the sewer pipe and try to snatch something out of it and see if you don't get smelly. My peer group of preachers, I have a lot in my peer group that in private conversations are rethinking and questioning the time-tested stand on Hollywood. And for us to question that stand, we've got to have two things we've, we've got to believe. First of all, for you to say that it's okay now when it used to not be okay is to assume that all of our elders that took that stand were wrong. And the reason I'm not quick to do that is because I have detected more spiritualities in the, in the elders that took that stand than in a lot of the peer group that's questioning the stand. Some of those convictions were born in prayer and fasting and adversity with men that walk with God. And the second thing that we would have to conclude to, to, to uh, start allowing Hollywood in measured forms would be to conclude that somehow it's gotten better and it's not as bad as it used to be. There are principles of godliness. 
And every principle has got to have an application. I'm going somewhere with this. The principle of holiness teaches that we should not defile our bodies because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. But this principle of preserving the temple is where we get an application or a standard that we do not smoke cigarettes, nor chew tobacco, or dip skull. That's the application. The principle says that we should be modest in our clothing. And if there's ever been a time we need to continue to preach the principle of modesty, it's right now. The closer people get to the devil, the more comfortable they are exposing themselves in a nude form in public places. But the closer you get to Jesus, the more you want to cover up. It's not just enough to believe in modesty. Somebody's got to define what modesty is. I believe that a man of God needs to teach a sleeve link, a hem link, a neckline. Sometimes I go to church. Older ladies the other day, those of you that's doing like this all during church, some wrong. You buy that skirt and you go walk like this. There's something wrong. We got a principle and says we got to be modest, but we need to have a teaching pastor that says for us, for us in our house around here, there's going to be some lines that we don't cross, and there's going to be some so there's going to be some points of markation and and some identifiable attributes of modesty. I'm going to tell you when we fall. In love with the principles of holiness. We start creating a culture of life. I'm going to tell you, when you love it, and I believe I'm preaching to some people this morning that do love it. When you love it, when you got it in you, when it's not a struggle, it's not even something you got to think about every day. When you, you embrace it as a part of life, and it's part of the nature of Jesus coming out in you. There is life to a holiness church. As an evangelist, I preach in, in holiness churches, and I preach in a few worldly churches at least once. And I have learned that there is a power and a life and there's an anointing in a holiness church that is not in a worldly church. But I'm afraid what happens is we have people due to lack of revelation 
that all they get is the standard, but not the principle. They get the application, but they don't have a foundation from which the application flows. And so the raising kids don't. You can't wear that short sleeve. You can't. You can't. You can't do that. You can't watch that. You can't go there. You have to do this. You can't cut that. And, and you better shave your face. You better. You, well, why? Well, because we're Pentecostal. That's why you can't do that. I told you. But well, why? Well, because Brother Adam said so. But but why? Well, just because he's the pastor. I'll tell you what the problem with the Pharisees were is they had a bunch of rules and the rules in and of themselves sometimes weren't even all that bad. But they did not have the life giving principle behind the rule. All they had was a bunch of legalism. And I'm going to tell you brothers and sisters if all we've got for holiness in church is legalism we're going to turn our church into a cauldron of death. We're going to kill people. We're going to kill the young people. We're not going to produce life. But I believe through prayer and digging in the word of God, we can plug into the revelation behind it. And there is an anointing in preaching the principles of holiness that will produce application in the pew, that will produce life in the church. Our church will either be defined as a place where there is a predominant culture of life or there will be a culture of death. Church, church attendance and involvement should be the privilege of every saint. But if our participation in church is ever reduced to one of duty alone, Something's wrong. If we worship grudgingly, and worship has to be forced, if our paradigm as leaders ever becomes that people really don't want to be here and they really don't want to worship God, but I'm going to make them do it anyway, we've got trouble. I tell our worship leaders at home, you get up there and worship, and they see you worship, they'll worship. We're not going to have all this, come on, somebody. You ain't worshiping. You ain't shouting. Y'all never been to service like that, have you? Like the old bumper sticker I saw said, the beatings will continue until the morale improves. I've met a few pastors that pastored by that slogan. But that's a culture of death. Don't see the kid in its mother's milk. Do not take what is intended to be a source of life and make it a source of death. Some signs that we're producing death instead of life. Is, is if we ever 
hit a point in our church where the good people in the church are afraid of the ministry. I know the wicked may have fears based on convictions, but when the good people are afraid. If as a pastor I have to resort to fear tactics and manipulation to keep people connected, Something's wrong. Fear will only take you so far, but love will take you a lot further. We ever get the spirit in our church that nobody really wants to live for God anymore. We're the only ones in town that's still going. One guy I know in Mississippi said he was the only church in all of Mississippi right now that where someone go to heaven from. Brother Boren, you're out. That attitude is not godly. It's a culture of death. But you know what? I got a vision as a pastor. And this might be an experiment. I've been pastoring seven years and it's starting to work. And, and I know some people don't believe in pastoring this way, but let me just dream a little bit. I dream of having the kind of church where people want to be there more than they want to miss. I want to have the kind of church where it's so positive and so exciting and so powerful. There's something in the hearts of the saints that says, I'm afraid I might miss out on something. I dream of pastoring a group where people want to get involved. They want to drive the bus. They want to do outreach. They want to sing. I dream of a church that's exciting, a church that's happy, a church that's joyful. Can we stand together? I want the life of God to be in me and in the church. Hallelujah. You know what I like about coming to these WPF meetings? Is there's a culture of life here. My wife and I were talking here a little while back. Seems like we've been to so many camp meetings and we left feeling depressed. Brother Sam Howard uh, here, he told about the other day he just preached a great revival in our church. And he told about uh, going to a camp meeting a while back. He said uh, he was so depressed he started looking for a bridge to jump off of. And, and uh, I'd went to that same meeting and so he finally found the bridge, but there's 15 other preachers up there in line. And I said, wait for me, I'm right behind you. But I love coming here when I leave. I feel like I can do something more for God and feel like a church can have revival and, and God's still moving and God still loves us and there's still people that love God. Can you put your hands together and let's give God thanks for what he's blessed us with.